digital noise. It's noisy and it's digital because it's awesome and blue-rays. Wow, you're certainly in a good mood, Chris. Of course I am. Winter is over. No more freezing cold days and threats of snow. Yeah, but... Spring is here. Time to start planning barbecues and outdoor screenings. Now that winter is over, what do us Austinites have to fear? I mean, off the top of my head, wind, storms, brush fires, fire ants, drought, and hipsters. Well, shit. But hey, there's always beer. Oh yeah, beer is never out of season. about to watch we salute you this is digital noise here on one of us.net the internet's premier blu-ray and dvd review podcast i say that mostly because i haven't been able to find another blu-ray and dvd review podcast i am your host brian salisbury or as my college doormates used to call me deep contrast that frightens me deeply it should and i'm joined by my co-host my partner in crime and a man always taking names and kicking aspect ratios Christopher Lawrence Cox. Thank you so much. I have kicked many aspect ratios today, and they are all afraid of me. I'll kick a 4.4 by 3 until it's a 1.85. I don't know what I'm saying. Something. I don't know. It's too, That's why I kick them. I don't even care. I'm like, I don't care what your ratio is. Just stay down where you belong. Uh, well, guys, sorry for the late hour of the show this week. Couldn't be helped, but we are here to... Uh, Sift through a mixed bag, I would I would have to say this week, but as we usually do, uh, that's our job. That's our job. That's what we do. We watch the shitty stuff too. Yeah, no release too <laughs> big, no release too small. Sorry. Uh, so I want to remind you guys that digital noise, just like all of our content here on One of Us .net, is available on iTunes. All you got to do is search for One of Us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's at D I G I NoiseCast. Uh, you can also follow the entire website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And you can become a subscriber, which would be a really good thing to uh, get in on the ground floor of right now, because within the next couple of weeks, we will be announcing drastic and awesome new policies for our subscribers, incentives, and all kinds of cool stuff. So We will come to your door and bring pie. Yes, that is one of the incentives. It's a very high-level uh, subscriber <laughs> yes, incentive. But it will be there, and if it happens, then, you know, it's going to be good pie is all I'm saying. Totally. So save your million-dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letter Box. Got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Our first question comes from James Waters, who asks, Are there any really great festival films from the past few years that have yet to receive a home release? Yes, James, there are. And the first one that jumps to mind immediately for me is A Boy and His Samurai. Yeah, that's that's one of those ones I'm a little baffled by. Yeah. So well universally received. What's happening? It was a fantastic fest film from Japan uh, about a, uh, a young boy who... Through some twist of science, uh, a feudal-era samurai shows up and becomes his best friend. It happens. And there's this great sort of subplot about, uh, with like, a custard 
like dessert stand and, and it's just it's a beautiful sweet story and it was so much fun and yet for some reason it never got picked up yeah i can't figure that one that was one of the ones i expected immediately to get like in fact maybe even like you know limited u.s distribution because yeah. it's so accessible but yeah you never know that's why i should be working for one of these companies picking festival films I'm just saying yeah, no, you you plugged that before. <laughs> um, it's funny because I, I our friend Noah, I, I found online he has a list of every single movie that's ever played Fantastic Fest. Yep. I was like, holy shit, you know, with like poster art and everything uh, that goes to descriptions. Like, okay, I'll go through this, and then realizing. I can't remember a lot of the fantastic <laughs> films, like even ones I may have really liked. But uh, one of the ones that stuck with me that has not gotten a release is The Dark Hour, which was a fun uh, post-apocalyptic sci-fi thing with a bunch of people trapped in a bunker uh, and being menaced by sort of shadows. Yeah. Really, really creepy little film that hasn't gotten a release of any kind. I'm really surprised. Not in not in the States. Not, and, not, not uh, on DVD. It's not on Amazon at all. Well, no. It, okay. So here's the thing about the, the – uh, the movie's actually called The Cold Hour. And it was released in the UK for rental only as The Dark Hour. And the only reason I know that is because Luke we, – we, we so looked for that movie. We loved it so much. We couldn't find it anywhere that Luke ended up buying online a used UK rental copy of The Dark Hour, which is, in fact, The Cold Hour, uh, which is uh, its original title. So we have a copy of it, and yet – it has not been released in the States, and it was hard to get even, you know, from this UK release because it was limited to a certain number of rental copies. It wasn't even really put out for sale over there. Yeah. So it's, it's for all intents and purposes, unavailable. Right. Uh, we were just lucky enough to kind of to squeeze in. That was actually the, the other movie on my list because I really dug that movie. Yeah, it was excellent. Uh, and just from this past year, even though – I mean the question specifically says has yet to receive a home release. So I'm just going to throw out Grand Piano. It is going to get a home release, but boy, I can hardly wait to see it again. <laughs> as of right now, as of this moment, it has not. Uh, our next question comes from Joseph Trochet who asks, with Fargo from Dusk Till Dawn, Hannibal and Bates Motel seeing new life on the small screen – what movie universe would you like to see explored on TV? Well, the answer is obviously Xanadu. So it is a place where nobody dared to go, but I would dare to give it at least three seasons. <laughs> no, no, it's not Xanadu. They can't have that much roller skating on television. It's just something would something would break. Um, no, the answer is as predictable as you'd expect it to be coming from me. Either Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. I would love to see that turn into a fun, campy TV series, or Big Trouble in Little China. Where we continue to see the adventures of Jack Burton. Yeah, no, I, I would totally be down. I think the the key to the successful retconning uh, movies for TV is to select films that have really immersive universes, which is why I think my answer would be Blade Runner. Like, I would love to see a sort of dark, noirish crime show set in the future, you know, around a group of, of Blade Runners. Or they did guys. do one, except they called it Total Recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Well, did you ever watch that series? Total Recall? Yeah, there was like a Total Recall series, no. except it was pretty much just Bla Blade Runner, the series. I did not. I did not watch this. Yeah, I was like, you guys wanted the rights to Blade Runner, but couldn't get them, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> I'm just saying, I would watch a show about a, a scrappy group of young Blade Runners tracking down replicants. I think that would be a hell or of a, a show. a scrappy group of young replicants running from Blade Runner. Yeah. It might be even more interesting. Or maybe one week it's one thing and the, the next week it's the other thing. I want to see the Asian version, Braid Runner. Oh, <laughs> good. And the hate mail comes in early this I'm week. I'm only quoting the movie. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would like to see a show, uh, not a Star Wars TV show necessarily, but one that's set at Mos Eisley. Just like the, the dirt bags of Mos Eisley. I would watch that show. Just yeah. like... 
bounty hunters and murderers and smugglers. All like all the show just centered around. It's like Cheers, except for you know scumbags for scum and villainy. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Everyone knows your name, so get the fuck out of town. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I think I would watch at least the pilot of that. There you go. <laughs> well, you're going to need a good pilot uh, uh, to fly you out of here. I get it. I get it. Uh, do, 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 wah, do, do. Wah, wah. Thanks for your questions, guys. We really appreciate it. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox for another week, which means it's time to dive into the reviews. I want to remind you yet again that everything we talk about, there's going to be a little uh, image down below that has an Amazon link. If you click on that link and get to Amazon, even if you don't buy that particular item, as long as you get to Amazon via our link, anything you buy, we get a cut of that purchase, and we would really appreciate you doing that. Yep. I don't always buy from Amazon links, but when I do, I use the ones at oneofus.net. Absolutely. You will be the most interesting man on the internet. Well, we're going to start this week with uh, arguably our, our, our biggest release this week, which is Frozen. Which is that Adam Green movie about people stuck on a ski lift? No, no, no. I mean, I love that movie. Yeah. Don't get me wrong; it's a great movie. But no, this is a this is a Disney shamelessly stealing the title from Adam Green. They're clearly <laughs> big fans of that hey, movie. Hey, as all we are. You need to are let that all. go. You need to let it go. No, I'm not letting it go. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> let it go. That's what that song's really about. It really is. Oh, my God. We have solved the mystery of Let It Go. The 3,000 interpretations of what Frozen is actually about on the internet, they've missed the most obvious one. It's about me letting go Disney ripping off the title for Madame. Aren't you glad you listen to the show and can really get every nuance of film? Look, I am not even going to begin to address all the... Really ridiculous and hyperbolic arguments against Frozen. It's the most feminist movie ever made. It's the most misogynist movie ever made. It's turning little kids into lesbians. It's to, I mean, I have yet to read one that seemed to make an, a lick of sense, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, they're about as crazy as those interpretations of like, where they go, oh, Citizen Kane was actually about how like aliens have visited us on the planet. If you read between Look, the lines, History Channel, leave our movies alone. Seriously. You can't just put aliens and everything. It's okay to just enjoy a movie for what it is. And when you're talking about Disney cartoons, you're pretty much in the right department for just enjoying a movie for what it is and not trying to... Don't you remember what happened when Cargill decided that The Lion King was an allegory for communism? Let's just stop this sort of looking too deeply into things and just say, hey... Disney's making pretty good animated films again. Yay! Yeah, I'm, I'm just happy with that, for sure. Uh, Frozen, yeah, it's it's one of those movies that I would put alongside Tangled as sort of a a, a post-modern type of, uh, of Disney princess movie. And I like what they're starting to do. I like how they're, they're keeping a lot of what made Disney great in the early days and just sort of tweaking it here or there to make it at least a little bit self-aware so that it's you know it, it's even more applicable in in a in a postmodern culture where we've grown up with not only all these movies but all of the movies making fun of these movies and now we're kind of getting a, a an era of Disney where it's like they're at least aware of that. Also, it's fun and people chase each other in the snow yeah. and magical things happen. And there and there's a funny reindeer <laughs> and a talking snowman and I mean it's all and it's it's beautifully animated for you know I I sometimes bemoan the the loss of, you know, hand-drawn animated films, but this really does look great. 
Oh, yeah. There's no question. I mean, and as much as I love it when every once in a while we get the return of the hand-drawn film, Disney seems to have switched over completely to the, uh, you know, hey, Pixar's our bigger seller, so now let's do everything in this style. Yeah. And they, but that's not to say they do it cheaply at all. That's this, true. Yeah, this looks fantastic. Uh, and I, I found that the characters were really likable. I love the fact that they've got a villain who's not really a villain. She's, you know, a c- confused girl stuck in a weird position. It's yeah. a, it's an in much like uh I I think Brave threw some people off because of the what its story like was focusing on the bond between a mother and daughter. This is the bond between sisters. Yes. I think to some degree that threw a lot of people off because it's like it's not trying to say anything like controversial it's just trying to do a story that's not the same fucking story we've seen a billion times already yeah and i think it you know when you when you start to realize what's happening with one of the sisters and you realize the path that her life is possibly on it it really eschews the idea of black and white you know heroes and villains in the classic disney stories like in a classic disney story you have the princess who is always good and you have the evil witch or the evil queen who is always evil. Yeah. And in this, it's like you realize that you're watching the beginnings of a supervillain origin story and there's a very clear crossroads where it's like if she continues along this path, she's going to be a traditional t- Disney villain. But what happens within the story that kind of thwarts that is where it gets the most interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, maybe if we would just take these supervillains when they were just starting their supervillainy and just give them a big hug, <laughs> there would be no need for Austin Powers. Yes, there would be no need for Austin Powers, and I'd be okay with that. I would be okay with that, because too. Because those sequels were terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I would say they're all pretty bad, but... <laughs> that Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, um, maybe that a lot of that's just being done with Mike Myers. Now they all seem worse than they were the first time around now. It could be. But, yeah, I, I thought this was great all the way through, that Kristen Bell does a great job playing Anna, the protagonist here, certainly. Uh, not just because I'm a shameless Kristen Bell ground she walks on worshiper. Uh, you are kind of that, though. Yeah, a little little bit um the josh gad once again is one of those the least likely guy to have a you know when you look at him to go wow this guy's career is going places but he plays the the anthropomorphized uh snowman olaf who is genuinely quite funny yeah a lot of stuff to like in this a lot of uh great so when they go into that whole okay now it's time for the fast moving roller coaster sequences that are done really well the whole thing moves quickly it's weird that when it used to be the Disney's traditional animal animation films were turning just into crap and like just very poorly thought out stuff. And Pixar was like, everything they did was amazing. Now Pixar is putting out churned out sequel garbage and the Disney originals are actually coming out great. Yeah. And it, it's funny. Like I, I kind of was tracking stuff like that. And then I stopped because I couldn't, I couldn't, figure out where the line of demarcation is between Pixar and Disney anymore. Like that There's relation- not, there doesn't seem to be much of one now that well, I think, controls the whole department. Yeah. It's just like everything is kind of now owned by Disney again. So I, it's, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to not suspect that a lot of the decision-making going on with the sequels at Pixar is not Disney influence. You know what I mean? Like, cause Disney, Disney loves sequels. Usually they do it direct to video, Yeah, but they love sequelizing their shit. And I feel like they saw an opportunity and I could be completely wrong. I don't know all the behind the scenes stuff, but it could just be that they were like, well, Pixar is really popular. All of their films are really good and popular. Let's sequelize them and put those, you know, in, in, in theaters, which I think is what's going on right now. And it's very unfortunate. Yes, extremely so. 
this, of course, being a Disney animated release, comes with a significant amount of extra features Definitely. as well. Uh, look from the, from the original Hans Christian Andersen story that's based on the, with Walt Disney himself trying to develop a feature film around this early on, and the road that eventually led to, of course, Frozen finally getting made. Uh, various different featurettes, deleted scenes collection, uh, presented by the director Chris, Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. So 16 minutes of musical video, music videos. Yeah, but none of them done by Adina Menzel. It's, ba- it's the yeah. same song. Yeah. Four different versions, none of which are Adina Menzel. And I'm like, I'm sorry. The music in this, in this movie is fantastic, by the way. Yeah. And Let It Go is one of the most powerful Disney songs ever written. And it's, a lot of its power comes from Adina Menzel's performance of it. And to not include that version when you have four versions on the Blu-ray yeah. makes no fucking sense not to me. Not really at all, no. But uh the biggest uh, draw, of course, with these is the animated short that preceded the theatrical release here, which is called Get a Horse. I like that. With Mickey Mouse. And I love that. Th- I, w- I wish every movie came included with a sh- like a seven or eight minute short of some sort yeah. for it, you know? Absolutely. And, it's- and newsreels. Yes. And it's- <laughs> that Hitler's a bad egg. Watch out for him. So old, old timey newsreels. Anyway, that was Frozen. Frozen. Very much recommend. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about Reasonable Doubt. And I have a reasonable doubt that I saw this film because I didn't see this film. So I would call that extremely reasonable doubt. Yes. In fact, so much so as to not refer to it as doubt, <laughs> but a provable fact. Reasonable assurance. <laughs> uh, just assurance, in fact. <laughs> This was a 2014 Canadian crime thriller film uh, that starred Samuel Jackson and... So at the end, does the killer apologize for for killing people? I'm really sorry to have inconvenienced you by murdering all these people. (laughs) Sorry, my bad. (laughs) And uh, Dominic Cooper, who has been appearing in a lot of stuff recently, we just reviewed him in Need for Speed. Oh boy. Uh, And here he plays a up-and-coming district attorney who... On his way back from sort of a celebration party, hits a guy with his car, you know, gets out, goes, oh, my God, uh, what can I do to help? The Sorry. Guy's, guy's like, don't leave, don't leave. Uh, he's like, I, you know, I can't be trapped here. But he goes to a payphone, immediately calls for the cops that there's an accident and then takes off. Like, totally freaked out he's going to get caught because, of course, that would be the end of his career, like, le- legally. There's there's just no other way about it. If he was caught with that, it would be. So you kind of sympathize. It was an... Even though he was drunk, it was kind of an honest accident at the time when it happens. The guy literally runs out in front of his car. Um, so, yeah, you feel bad for the guy, but still, like, okay, this is a morally questionable situation. But things get worse when they pull in an innocent guy uh, for the crime, played by Samuel Jackson. Appears to just be a working man, had a horrible past. His wife and kid were murdered at a, in a home invasion, like... Jesus. A year beforehand, so it's like this is a really pity, pitiful situation. But it, it it just one of those things. He was a good Samaritan who picked, saw the guy on the side of the road, put him in the back of his van, and tried to drive him to the hospital. Uh, and then got you know caught. And it was like, well, I'm sorry, dude. It kind of looks like you know you would you hit the guy. Jesus. Uh, and even worse when they find out there's been a link of other crimes that he was at least put on the list for as a possible suspect following a serial killer. Now, Dominic Cooper, of course, doesn't believe any of this because he knows he hit the guy and is like, basically starts sabotaging Samuel Jackson's case, you know, because uh. he's forced in the position to be the prosecuting attorney and gets to the point where, okay, well, so he's let go because he so mismanages and mangles the case on purpose. Uh-oh, 
What if the reason the guy ran out in front of the van was because he was running from Samuel Jackson? Oh, shit. Oh, God, he's really a killer. So the big twist here is that the the black guy really did do it. It wasn't just (laughs) accused because, wait a minute, that's the twist of the movie? Pretty much. (laughs) It's not even really a twist because it's in the trailer, I guess. I mean, there is no movie without knowing ahead of time that that's what the deal. I mean, you look at the cover and you're like, does Samuel Jackson look like he's playing an innocent guy here? No. No. <laughs> and of course, it t- he looks unreasonably intense. It turns into sort of a cat and mouse thing as as uh, Dominic Cooper is determined to prove it's him. But Samuel Jackson has prepared for this and taken uh, found enough evidence to suggest that Dominic Cooper was in fact the guy who hit him with his car. And there's all sorts of little other cross things. Like Dominic has a, a stepbrother who he sort of disowned because he had kind of a criminal past, but who steps up to take the credit for being the guy in the hit and run. And I just, you know, it, it's one of those that feels like it could have built to something interesting, but then it just does so many things out of character. I mean, like saying that Samuel Jackson is a killer who is doing what he does. Cause he kind of lost his mind after his own family was killed is fine. But then when he starts doing things that just make him a mustache twirling, evil Machiavellian Moriarty type, <laughs> you're like, okay, this is start. This is stopping to make any sort of reasonable sense. <laughs> I have reasonable doubt that this is going to end well. And sure enough, it just kind of mehs out by the end. It's it's a big mess of a film. Dominic Cooper, once again, just like in Need for Speed, seems like he doesn't really want to be there or can't think of anything interesting to do with this role. Uh, I'm starting to think that like the stuff I've seen him in before that I liked him in was a fluke because he's certainly no good in this. Samuel Jackson himself is not. He's not really trying real hard either. This well, that's, just, that's been a hallmark, unfortunately, of Samuel L. Jackson and a lot recently of just, like, yeah. coasting through movies. I'm tired. I do everything I can to make money for my family or whatever. It takes a lot of energy to shout that much. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't even do that much shouting here. He's mainly being the cool, calm, collected, evil Samuel hmm. L. Jackson. But, yeah, I'd say skip it. This is kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> All right. Well, don't see Reasonable Doubt, but perhaps see American Hustle, which is the next film we're going to talk about. Uh, if for no other reason than, you know, if you're a completist who needs to see everything that was nominated for Oscars this year, then, you know, this is definitely something you should check out, despite the fact that, did it end up, did it end up winning anything? Um. I mean, I know it was nominated for a lot of awards, and it was kind of one of the darlings going in, and. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, but it did not win any category. Yeah, it, it was nominated for a shit ton of categories. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I would agree with a lot of the nominations, just not Best Picture, because I think that this was a film, or, or probably Best Director, because uh, even though I love David O. Russell, he's a director who likes to take a lot of chances. He makes very, like, well, nobody else has really made this work before, but I'm going to try anyway type films. Yeah. And sometimes it works really perfectly, like Silver Linings Playbook. And sometimes you can see that everything doesn't quite fit together the way they hoped it would. And I feel like American Hustle is one of those films that there's a lot to admire here. No question. Yeah. But it all feels like stuff stitched together rather than a complete whole. Well, you know, the basic plot here is that Christian Bale plays a con man who gets a little in over his head when he tries to take an FBI agent and his penance for when he's caught, he he'll get, he'll be able to get off the hook if he helps the FBI con their way into arresting uh, these these mafia guys who are kind of running this big 
uh, broker scam and all this other stuff. And uh, so basically it's like help the FBI con their way into arresting this mafia guy and then they'll let you off. And not just mafia guys, but uh, politicians. Oh, yeah. People of power in America who are all the way up and down the ladder. They're trying to break corruption. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the basic rundown of the film. And I think. What makes it uh, sort of an experience to watch is that it's an actor showcase. Oh, sir! I mean, it is, you got Christian Bale, you got Bradley Cooper, Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, all of these people just turning in fantastic performances. And I feel like that's it, – it's hard to say – like I want to say like that's where David O. Russell really shines in this movie is his direction of the performances. But then on the other hand, it's like Christian Bale and Jennifer Lawrence and even Bradley Cooper to a certain extent are, are – are actors that know how to turn in great performances. Yeah. So it's almost like an embarrassment of riches for a Russell that I don't really think he had to do all that much. You know, it's the funny thing here is while all those actors are doing a great job, they all seem like they're doing a great job in a, in totally different types of films. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. all playing their their roles so in for for such different types of movies, which I guess to some extent makes sense for this because it is kind of tonally all over the place, really. Yeah. But I mean, you compare like Christian Bale, who most of the time is playing it very down to earth in this film. He's probably of all the characters the one who's most playing it close to the vest, and then Jennifer Lawrence, who is like who is a, a cartoon, who is a cartoon character. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not like, to say that's not to say her performance is bad. It's no. just that character is so over the top. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it's. In some ways, I kept thinking about the movie The Counselor in the sense that that, too, is all over the place with performances all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's just this is like the successful version of The Counselor, which isn't to say that it works completely. No. Because it it suffers from a lot of the same problems that film does. It's overcrowded. It's overcomplex. It's hard to follow at points what's going on. There's too many characters. um, The story jumps around a lot. But this one has the advantage of a director who I personally feel is a lot more on top of it than Ridley Scott has been in a long time. No, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and there, and I just think that, like you, the pieces didn't come together for me the way that they needed to. And I felt like with Silver Linings Playbook, it wasn't just about the performances. There was a lot of heart to that movie. It had a lot to say about mental illness and relationships. And I thought it was a very... Uh, powerful movie just subtextually and I feel like this movie has no subtext yeah it feels more like a tribute to Martin Scorsese than it does a film in and of its own right but yeah. a very pretty one you know yeah. very in- interesting to watch I mean I enjoyed watching this it just it's not as good as its ambition wants it to be no no it's it's reach out exceeds, exceeds its grasp kind of thing and, uh, and I was really sad she she uh, Wigham who is one of oh, those Shea Wigham, yeah. character actors who is Always doing interesting stuff. Who deserves to kind of be a marquee name? He really does. Turns in one of his more interesting roles here as like a really nice guy who ends up sort of sidelined into this whole corruption thing. And they never really give his character as much due as you hope they're going See, to. See, and that was another problem I had with this movie, is at the end of it, I didn't understand who I was supposed to be rooting for. Yeah. Because everybody's kind of... A, the good people in this movie, the the best people in this movie, more... And, you know, I'm, I'm making judgments based on my own proclivities, fine. But, like, the best people morally in this movie are the ones that are trying... Like, that they're, they're trying to nail with the scam. And I'm like... But that's bullshit. And then you get to the end and it's like, I'm not rude. I don't like Christian Bale and Jennifer Lawrence and Amy Adams. I kind of think they're all scumbags. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, don't understand why I should be happy for them. That, I mean, and I, I, I feel like that was the point, but I don't think it worked. Like that was the type of complex moral construction he was going after, but it doesn't sell. 
Yeah, but e- but even if even if you have characters that don't fall along black and light lines of morally good or morally bad, you still have to give the audience enough to like about them so that you're empathetic to them. And I feel like that's what I didn't get. I didn't get enough of that for Christian Bale, for Amy Adams, or for Jennifer Lawrence. I didn't I didn't get enough from them to make me side with them despite, you know, wherever they fell, you know, moral in terms of moral compass. I just I didn't have enough. They didn't give me enough to to like them to assign my allegiance to them for any reason. Yeah, I, I can see that. Except for I'm totally and from here on out, I will salute at the flag of Amy Adams side boobs. Which yeah. are extensive in I, this film. I was surprised Best Supporting Actress uh, didn't go to those shirts that did not show nipples throughout the movie. Yeah, I was like, wow, there's a lot of spirit gum permanently attached to her areola at this. Best point. Supporting Costume should be a new category, I think, this year. Uh, not a lot of extras on here. There's this, there's a, a few deleted scenes and there's about a 16 and a half minute making of, and that's it. Oh, there's going to be a, you yeah, know, there's, there's going to be a special edition. At some yeah, point, no, obviously. absolutely. But I will say that they couldn't have predicted this. So I'm not surprised it didn't end up here, but there was a great video going around the internet uh, about a week ago where Louis CK, who was in the movie, he has a small part in the movie was on a British talk show and he was talking about inside the actor's studio. And he was saying, you have that part inside the actor's studio where, you know, somebody will raise their hand and be like, hey, Mr. Penn, I'm an actor, first-year track, and I just want to know how I can be as successful as you. And Louis C.K. joked that, like, well, you're not going to be because you're sitting there asking that question. None <laughs> of those guys are ever grow up to – you never see that and go, oh, my God, he grew up to be blah, blah, blah. And they they played that clip, and then they immediately played an old uh, episode of Inside the Actor Studio where it was Sean Penn, and the guy asking the question was Bradley Cooper. Huh. And then they recut that to that scene in American Hustle where Bradley Cooper just comes in going, ha, 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 and like humping Louis C.K. <laughs> and I was like, I never would have put all those pieces That's together. That's really funny. But it's brilliant. So when they do a special edition, I really hope that video makes it on there because it was hilarious. Has Louis C.K. actually said anything about this? I, I don't know if he's had a, a, a rebuttal after seeing like, oh, yeah, I was really wrong on this one. <laughs> And, you know, the funny thing is, I'm sure that's not the only guy who's been in the audience at one of those who ended up going on to be bigger things. Right, I mean, but that's at UCLA acting school. So, it's well, not like, only that, but it's like, yeah, you know, they edit it so only a couple people have their questions live on the air. So it's like, you know, the the chances of of getting somebody really famous. Yeah, not so great, but I just think it's fun. So overall, he's not wrong, but it's just funny that the one time he's wrong is his co-star from American Hustle. That's what is really funny. Who, who in fact, is the, the marquee title when he is not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you just got hustled, Louis C.K. Anywho, we're going to move on from there and talk about Sparks. Sparks! Uh Savior of the universe? I don't know. I, I just don't know what this movie's about. So, uh, Well, Sparks is about a character named Ian Sparks. And this is a superhero film, original, made from a graphic novel that I believe was written for to accompany this this movie. I mean, make no mistake. This is a, a low-budget movie. It's titled The Origin of Ian Sparks. But it's one of those films that, despite really mediocre as hell CG. I mean, really, really low budget CG. They clearly had almost no budget for this. And middle of the round, middle of the road acting, some better than others. Uh, it still stands above with a really darn good script. Hmm. I've seen a few of these direct to DVD type. I want to make, we want to make our own superhero movie things that have been popping up here and there lately, you know, from completely independent studios. And they tend to suck really bad. Yeah, with so, the exception, I mean, this is a reach back, but with the exception of things like Mirage Man. Sure, but, um, you know, despite the title, I still have a hard time even, and the fact that he wears a suit at points, it's not really a superhero movie. It, it's yeah, only it kind of in is. the most tertiary way is that a superhero movie. It's a superhero movie. <laughs> if you say so. I do. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm going to respectfully disagree. <laughs> but uh, this most definitely is with, uh, and it's done like a sort of period piece-ish, no, very noir story. This is like something like Image has been putting out lately or something like Ed Brubaker would write here. And the idea here, the title character who goes by Sparks, uh, when he was a kid, his parents are killed uh, when uh, a basically a runaway bank robbers hit his parents' car at a railroad crossing, cr- crash into the, the railroad car, and he's pulled out of the burning wreck by Clancy Brown, who's a, a kind local police officer who had been chasing the cops in question. Who always appreciates the paycheck. A flash to years later, and he's like, well, you know, I'm, I, I have to, I feel like my destiny is to fight crime. So he does a lot of working out and stuff, doesn't have any special powers to speak of. He just wants to fight crime and slowly over time learns how to be a somewhat competent crime fighter. In fact, going so far as to end up forming a partnership and eventually a relationship with a pretty goddamn hot female superhero who (laughs) more or less is the same deal. She's just badass and kicking ass. Uh, uh, named Lady Heavenly. <laughs> okay. I know, right? You're like, wait, really? Lady, are you sure you want to go with that? That, that sounds seems... like one of the characters from the brothel in Man with the Iron Fist. I was going to say, she's always got a second option to turn to uh, porn if, if the superhero <laughs> thing doesn't work out. But uh, everything goes really bad when she's kidnapped by a serial killer and Spark shows up to fight and then apparently just blacks out. Uh Afterwards, even though, uh, you know, another superhero comes, comes in and saves her, uh, and kills the, the bad guy, but she can't get over it. It's like literally, you, you fainted, dude. <laughs> you fainted. <laughs> and everything turns bad. And we watch Sparks as he hits rock bottom, slowly starts to claw, claws way up, and then ends up discovering that everything he knows is not how he thought it was. And in fact, dum, dum, he dum. may very well have a superpower. After all, what? Uh, this, uh, like I said, this is a lot of fun. It's a really clever little script. It suffers from everything that super low budget films suffer from, uh, and in spades. But if you can look past all that, I think you're going to find a, a movie that, for those who like independent superhero stuff, I think you're really going to like this. I, I got a lot of, you know, I'm keeping this one. I even passed it on to Martin going, I want you to try this out. I I'm usually don't do this, but I think this is one of those rarities of that little unicorn of a film you might actually enjoy. Right on. Yep. Well, and there's even a there's even a commentary track, outtake reels, making a featurette. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't expect that from a film direct to DVD that's this small, but yeah, they put together a nice little package. Sweet. Well, from uh, Sparks, we're gonna talk about Slumber Party Massacre which is the latest Blu-ray release from Scream Factory. You know, I have do. you ever even been to a slumber party where there wasn't a massacre? I, mean, I have, you know what, I can safely say I have never been to a slumber party where there wasn't a massacre. Yeah. Mostly because I've never been to a slumber party. You never went to a slumber party? Well, I don't think we called them that because we were dudes, but... Um, well, that's not specifically a female thing. Slumber parties seem to be across the board. Uh, I mean, I used to like... What I used to do is me and my buddy in high school would, would stay up watching movies and making Lego stop motion movies and then just like pass out like once the Mountain Dew wore off. But uh, I don't know. I guess you could call that a slumber party. I, I just we, never used that nomenclature. Oh, we would have organized ones where it was like that was the deal. Like everybody, it was a party, except it ended with everybody spending the night. And they'd call it a slumber party because it'd be like, okay, everybody bring your sleeping bags. And there'd be a whole room full of kids. Get your hair braided. Passed out, sugar crashed. <laughs> now we did not get our hair braided. 
Manny Petties. But you know the odd thing about this 1982 exploitation slasher film? A is lot. That it's written and directed by woman, as was this entire series, which is odd considering it's about a guy with a giant phallic drill. Oh, that could not kills be more phallic. Half naked woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? This was made by woman? And not just any woman. This was written by Rita Mae Brown, who went on to be quite a famous mystery writer. Yeah, and, and it was directed by Amy Holden Jones. And Slumber Party Massacre is a Roger Corman production. So there's a great little bit on uh, the interview here, the behind the scenes for Slumber Party Massacre, where Amy Holden Jones basically says that she had been working as an editor for, you know, people like Scorsese on Taxi Driver. And, like, she'd been getting good work, but she always wanted to be a director. And the only person at the time who was willing to give her the chance to be a director was Roger Corman. But you got to do what Corman wants you to do, ultimately. Well, but it was like – it was one of those things like she she basically said like everybody gives me crap for uh, for directing this slasher film with these women. But it's like it's also a horror comedy. I thought I was being pretty subversive. And again, Roger Corman was the only person at the time giving me the chance to direct. So she actually turned down editing E.T., Oops. To direct Slumber Party because she wanted to be a director. And I, yeah. I thought that was kind of a cool story because it's like, you know, everybody talks about Roger Corman being the this, this schlockmeister and all he makes are bad movies. It's like, but he was so good about cultivating and recognizing talent and getting, like, incredible people to work on his films. And as slasher films go, this one is, is- – I'm not going to say it's great. It's not bad. No. I, it's much more entertaining if you go th- into it looking for the subversive feminine, feminist subtext going on here, which definitely exists, but you have to, you still have to look for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the fact that they, do, they take every opportunity to equate this guy's drill with his penis. I mean, they really do. The shot where he's literally standing with his legs apart, the camera is under his legs, and the girl cowering in the corner and the drill comes down between his legs. I was like, okay, you guys are really hitting us over the head with this cock at this point. <laughs> what? Could you phrase that differently? No, I cannot. I'm uh, sorry. Just slapping you in the face with that just cock? Slapping you in the face with it. <laughs> you know, my biggest sadness about this is that it, they didn't release it as a Blu-ray set with the next two like they initially did like a year or two years ago with the DVDs of Slumber Party 2 and 3 because 2 is my favorite of this whole series. Yeah, no, I remember where, you talking about that. Where they're the like, you know what? Nightmare on Elm Street is pop- popular. Let's take this and make it about like a dead rock star with a drill built into his guitar who haunts people's dreams. Like, I love wait, the drill tar. what? <laughs> Yeah, and this is one of those situations where uh, Slumber Party Massacre has been put out on DVD by Shout Factory in the past, and this Blu-ray is okay in terms of picture quality. It's not a huge step up from the DVD, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can do, I think. With I'm, I'm assuming the elements that remain from Slumber Party Massacre are not in the best shape. Probably. So I'm not really faulting them, but what I am, I'm basically saying this as a caveat. If you already own the Slumber Party Massacre DVDs... Not really sure you absolutely have to have this yeah. as well. Yeah, uh, not really. Yeah, I'm not sure. Was the interview in the making of? I think that was that on the DVD. The the interview the the making of I'm not sure was to be honest with you because it is in it is in high def, which leads me to believe that it probably wasn't on the DVD. But I don't know that for sure. Uh, but even even still, I think if you already own the DVD, like I don't I don't even think the interview necessarily is going to be a selling point for right. you. But it might be if you don't have those. This is a fun thing to p- pick up. It's, oh hell yeah! It's a decent little slasher movie if you collect this sort of thing. It's I would say it's it's maybe not essential, but but a damn good one to have as part of a collection of trying to understand the history of slasher films. Totally, I would absolutely so. agree with that. Yep. Slumber Party Massacre, USA, USA. 
And we are moving through these today. Let's, uh, let's keep moving. Keep right. them moving. Frightmare is up next, which, if I'm not mistaken, is an Australian slasher film? No, it's British. What? Yes, this Bullshit. is from British uh, director Pete Walker, who actually was a kind has his own sort of cult following of all the films that he he has actually done. Um, he's best known for both for this House of Whipcord and I believe House of the Long Shadows was the other one. So he's this really is a well different from. Yeah, this is a different Frightmare than I thought it was. Yes, it okay. very much is. All right. Uh, and uh, Pete Walker. <sighs> Look, British horror at this period is very give and take. Um, it's either completely psychedelic and crazy and fun. And like that the, most people don't give about it and could give a crap about it and could take it early. Like really obscure ones. Uh, I have a few of them floating around where like barely make sense, but they're fun because they're like trying to make hippie horror films. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Psychomania is a good example of that. Sure. Uh, or they're like the hammer type stuff, which really had this big studio behind it and was cranking out these pretty well done, very gothic little horror films. Uh, this is one of the ones that can fall between the cracks or did, except for like your hardcore horror aficionados. And honestly, I'm not the world's biggest Pete Walker fan. It's one of those like, I see what you did there and I can see how this was at the time seemed kind of new and really gross, but now it seems like just kind of quaint. Uh, the story here basically was built around the actress Sheila Keith. In fact, there's a documentary on here about the rest of her career. She appeared in a number of Yates films, who was an older actress and quite a good one, who he was like, I'm sorry, she's like the sweetest woman I know, who just something about her screams crazed serial killer. <laughs> And so he cast her as like evil people all the time. And yeah. he, here she plays a cannibalistic serial killer who's like in her seventies and kind of senile, who's living with her husband in a small farmhouse. We see in the beginning that, you know, she was convicted of this flashed to years and years, you know, decades later, she's been released uh, saying, okay, she's been cured. She's saying she and her husband are both sane now, but uh, their daughter, or at least her stepdaughter, because it was from a previous marriage for him is raising their actual daughter. They had together. Who's never even met them. Doesn't even know that, you know, who her parents were. And, She's turning into a total wild child. Okay. She's uncontrollable. She's taking her shirt off all over the place, as is every other character in this film. There's a lot of nudity in Peter Yates' films, which is... Peter Walker. Sorry, Peter Walker, which is one good thing I can say about his movies. Every female in them gets (laughs) naked except for Sheila Keith. Uh, And she doesn't know what to do. Meanwhile, on the other hand, on the other side... Mom is starting to lose it again, clearly. She's bringing people in to do tarot readings and then is using it for as an excuse to pretty much see how everybody has no future, so she might as well kill and eat them. This is the plot. That just <laughs> it is. There's really nothing more than that. As slowly it gets to the point where the wild child girl decides she needs to find out who her parents are, and you can kind of imagine, like, what ends up happening towards the end of this. Sure. It's... There's really, I don't know, it's just not, it's not that gory. It's a little gory. It's just not that much to, to say good about it unless you're just a fan of this period or already a fan of Pete Walker. Except that I really do think Sheila Keith is just fucking creepy as shit. She's like, like this old, <laughs> you know, matronly woman who's just like, when it's time for her to go crazy, she does it quite well. All right. Uh, so from there, you should probably move on to the other film by him we're covering this week. Oh, I didn't realize there were two films by him. Yes, The Flesh and Blood Show oh, okay. is the other one, which may have been the next one on your list anyway. It was know. close to the next one on my list. Uh, and The Flesh and Blood Show is a, a little closer to what you expect from horror these days and that it's a bunch of young pretty people getting picked off one at a time. 
Here it is uh, basically anonymous producers grabs a bunch of unemployed actors and sending a message saying, hey, we're going to do this new play called The Flesh and Blood Show, except we want you to basically we're going to pay you thinking you're all talented enough to put it together yourself based on certain things and sort of improv it together eventually to bring it to the West End. So It sounds like a project, not dissimilar from a project we're doing here at oneofus.net, which it, is terribly frightening. It, it does indeed. Are you a serial killer, Brian? Not yet. You know, I've got goals. I've got a, a, a tool shed. Oh, right on. Okay. Just Let's so do know. it. Uh, they're all, they've all gotten together rehearsing in an abandoned theater beside the sea. But a killer who we never see just wears black gloves is killing off the actors in various ways. Uh, people think they, they, like one guy, the, the director thinks he fi- has found a body. And then when he comes back, there's just a mannequin there. Um, it's, it's kind of a traditional slasher with everything you expect, including once again, cause it's a Pete Walker film, every female character repeatedly getting naked and having sex, <laughs> which is not such a bad thing. Um, Except until it gets to the end, which totally goes like, wait, what? <laughs> in fact, it, like it advertises, like including a whole 3D sequence. Like, okay, even though there are no 3D glasses included, you have to own a pair of blue and red glasses, which Weird. a lot of people do. A lot of the sets today have those anyway. But put them on. In theory, I didn't watch it. Th- this version, it. This 10 minute sequence, it's a flashback that once they show who the killer is, goes, okay, now here's how he became a killer. <laughs> it goes back in time to show the whole story. And you're like going, wow, this is really kind of breaking the pace of this film a bit. Yeah. More than just a bit. Um, <laughs> it's just such an odd decision to go with towards the end that really is, it's like when you watch a, a killer, oh, a horror movie or a mystery where it's they kind of never show the face and evidence piles up and people suspect each other and then it's nobody. You ever see those? And then yeah. they do, they act like, what? What's wrong with that? And you're like, <laughs> because of the way you shot it. Because fuck you, that's why. You can't do that and have it not be one of the pre-established <laughs> characters. <laughs> and I guess it kind of is, but only in that sort of like, hey, there's that guy you saw once. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Um, yeah. Once again, just like one of those movies, I'm like, okay. I mean, I enjoyed it in a visceral sort of way, I guess, but it's so dated and there's so many things that have been done so much better than this since. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. It was a reason Pete Walker never went on to much bigger and better things. I think he was just kind of a mediocre horror director that there's a certain amount of fondness for his little niche he cut out inside of English horror at the time. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, those are our Pete Walker movies for the week, thankfully, because we cover Pete Walker movies every week. Uh, thank you, Kino, for releasing the Pete Walker corner <laughs> films. We're going to move on there from there to a film called Contracted, uh, which, by the way, uh, in, in the realm of bad cover art, if you – if the only th- – how do I say this without spoiling the movie more than the cover – or less than the cover does – if there is one thing that happens in the entirety of your plot, maybe don't put the end result of that one thing that happens on the cover of the DVD. It's probably not such a great idea. It's not, because this is a movie about, as far as I can tell, and believe me, I am not the kind of person to jump to this movie has an agenda or that movie has an agenda, because normally they don't. But as far as I can tell, this is a movie about if you actually enter into a sexual relationship with a man... It will destroy you forever, and you should just be content being a lesbian. 
and I'm not I, – I, this is not me reading too much into it. The plot of this movie is literally that there's this young girl who has a uh, kind of a tumultuous relationship with her lesbian lover and they're they're trying to patch things up. But in the meantime, she goes to a party and another friend convinces her to get drunk and then she ends up sleeping with a guy. Well, kind of getting raped, really. Kind of get yeah. Because she gets roofied, roofied yeah. doesn't really remember much about the guy or what happened. But then things – like she starts getting really sick, like apocalyptically sick. And throughout the course of it, she's trying to patch things up with her, her, uh, her lover, her, her lesbian lover, and just disintegrating into monstrous, uh, it's just like she becomes some kind of, like, the, I don't even know how to describe she's it. Bleh. She's, she's like, it's, bleh. it's the hot zone. It looks like, like an Ebola movie. Yeah, it really does. It's like really gross. And, and the movie makes no other, I, man, I, like I said, I, I'm never one to say this movie has an agenda, but like, as far as I can tell, this that's, movie what, hasn't that's what this movie is about, is sleep with a dude, be forever fucked. It seems like a pretty silly agenda, quite frankly, because it, it doesn't really have much to say about it other than this weird right. sort of like, yeah, anger paranoia that came from someone. I don't know. It seems to be written by a guy, for yeah. the record. But Yeah, no, no, no. And again, I'm not, it's not a feminist thing. It's just yeah. this weird sort of like dudes will fuck disease into you type of movie. And the reason it feels even more so like that is because they never explain what the fuck this thing is. Yeah. They never explain what the sickness is or why this one guy was carrying it or what, like nothing is explained. I mean, at best I can, uh, as far as that goes, I can say it's the origin story for a genre of the, of which there are tens of thousands of movies out there for now. I mean, but, maybe. But, yeah, but, I mean, I, I think that's what they were chasing after, but that even doesn't really make sense. And that's the thing, is this thing almost shamelessly doesn't give a fuck about appealing to reality at all. I mean, yeah. put it this way, this girl starts bleeding from the vagina, like, copiously, with giant blue veins coming out of her groin, and it takes her days to even go see a doctor about it. Yeah. She's walking around with giant sores, I mean, giant quarter-sized sores on her mouth, a milky eye, like, on the cover, and dudes are still wanting to fuck her. Yeah. Okay, what is happening in this movie? <laughs> yeah, that, again, I think it's just a, a condemnation of the, the male sex, which, don't get me wrong, we suck. But like, not, we don't suck this bad. We're though. terrible. Like, men are awful. Don't get me wrong. I am totally on board for that. But, like, it does, it's just like, what are you trying to say in this movie other than the fact that we suck? Look, next week we can talk about a film that does men can suck really bad, uh, that did it well, Miss 45. We can talk about that yeah. next week yeah, and yeah. say, this is how you do this right. Contracted is how you do it wrong. Yeah, there's just <laughs> nothing to this movie. I feel like... The only thing going on is us watching this girl get sicker and sicker without any semblance of a of a of a reasoning as to why or uh something overarching of like and this is what's happening to society like nothing we just watch one girl get sick yeah. that's what this movie is and not even a pleasant not a person you can really root for she's no. so she's just a mess and she's rude to almost everyone and it, you know she lies all the time and she's going around like there's that point where she knows she has a disease and she doesn't give a fuck she's willing to spread it anyway yeah like you know what fuck her I don't care what the yeah. fuck I hope she dies it's it's hard it's hard to give and then there's some weird editing in this movie like I'll give you an example there's a scene where like her fingernails start coming off and she's her boss is by the way any restaurant manager who has an employee who looks like her and still forces her to work yeah. is asking for a fucking lawsuit. And one of her fingernails falls off and you go – she like right after she delivers salad to a table, you hear this blood-curdling scream from the woman ordering the salad. They cut to a shot of a fingernail at the end of a fork and then back to the woman's face and she's got like this – 
She looks bored. Bored? Yeah. It's like, she was just screaming. What the fuck is this insert shot? Like, guys, come on. Like, just basic filmmaking stuff that doesn't work. I don't know where they got the good reviews that were on the cover for this that were really talking about, like, this is one of the great new horror films. I don't even know where they got this from, but it so is not. It doesn't, doesn't do anything new. It doesn't. It doesn't really do much of anything other than yeah. us watching this one. Like, if it had more to say about sexuality, if it had more to say about, like, the, the, maybe the recklessness of our contemporary views of sexuality, fine. But it's really more just, if you fuck a dude at a party, it will destroy you. It's like, it's like an AIDS movie, essentially. Yeah, but it, it, like I said, I, I don't even know if it's anti-man even so much as like, I mean, cause she's just as bad as the dude is, you know, she's going around looking to fuck as well afterwards. You're like going, okay. So it's something to do with just the reckless recklessness when it comes to sex and our yeah. animal urges. And, but there's nothing interesting or new being said about it here. Exactly. So. Fuck it. Yep. Or don't, as it were. Don't contract contracted. Agreed. Why don't we move on from there to a little film called The Horror at 30, 37,000 Feet. Wow. Who would have knew I would have enjoyed the film labeled as William Shatner's worst movie <laughs> more than <laughs> contracted? Than a highly regarded, highly reviewed <laughs> new horror film. This was made for CBS TV uh, a long time ago in 1973. That basically looks like it could very well have been, hadn't been the cast of an airplane sequel. Um, you know, you've got Chuck Connors as the pilot. You've got Buddy Ebsen as sort of a, who was a, uh, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, of course. Jed Clampett. Jed Clampett as a rich kind of Southern guy on the plane. You've got Shatner as this ex-priest who does nothing but spout existential musings the whole time and talk about beat Nicky shit. So let me ask you this right off the bat. Movies called Horror at 37,000 Feet. Obviously, this, there was that famous Twilight there's Zone. There's nobody on the wing of the plane. Okay, so they really just made this movie to capitalize off that Twilight Zone episode, or I what? Don't, I don't know. Possibly, but uh, here that it's very different in that it's this couple who's gotten married even recently, even though they clearly can't stand each other. And uh, this woman who's followed them on the plane who just keeps going, you, you shouldn't have done what you did, which is, in fact, grab, basically take all of this ancestral abbey that was near her home and belonged to her family and dug it up and put it in shipping containers and brought it on the plane with them. Because apparently there's some sort of druidic crap in there that gets pissed off uh, and starts killing everybody on the plane. Yes, it is a supernatural horror film as basically something starts bashing its way through the crate and then starts issuing both up. Freezing and basically poop as near as I can tell throughout the plane. It's just like out of the ground will bubble what is, I, it sure looks like poop to me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you get too close to the, the, the crate, you get flash frozen and it's everybody trying to figure out what do we do with it and then don't go near that fucking crate. It seems to then, be the answer. You know, coming to a sort of like, Oh wait. If we had just waited this one out, everything would have been fine type ending, but we had to keep fucking with it. This is why you don't pick at scabs, kids. This is it. I'm just saying. And it's so silly that it's hard not to have a bit of fun watching this thing, quite frankly. It's really short. Everybody in this film you'll recognize pretty much. You're like, oh, they were on that TV show. Oh, I remember them from that. I mean, Paul Winfield is in here. Yay! Yeah, it's like, oh, this must be a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Or Wrath of Khan. Hey, got to work with Kirk again. There you go. Hey, look at that. (laughs) This is where they, outside of the Academy, this is where they bonded. This is where they got to be friends. But yeah, it's... 
I don't know. I mean, it's one of those direct-to-DVD things that uh, they're just shitting out. Like, oh, we own this, so we might as well go ahead and uh, – CBS is like, we own it, so we might as well put it out because we just plaster Shatner's name on it. And some people, like Chris, will pick it up. <laughs> and I'm uh, glad I did. Like I said, it's dumb as hell, but boy, does it know how to – like, or not know how to make a good horror film and be just sort of laughably ridiculous about it. <laughs> I, I had fun, if nothing else. Well, good. Uh, speaking of things that I can't quite understand why they are currently being released on DVD, let's talk about Monsters, the complete series. Oh, man. I myself am happy as hell they put really? out Really? Oh, my God. Totally. Uh, and no, it's not for everybody. Certainly. This is from the same people who made Tales from the Dark Side series, which was basically a, you know, a Twilight Zone-y type show that was dealing with absolutely the lowest budget imaginable. And then somehow Monsters seems to have an even lower budget than that. Uh, I would say they actually had more money to spend here. Not they, by a They weren't spending it on the right places. Not by a significant margin, but overall, the actual monsters they put in here don't look bad at all. It's all Dick Smith-created creations. Yeah, and I kept seeing his name and getting really excited, and then, like, you would get to, like, episodes where there would be zombies with what looked like paper towels on their faces. Like, I think it's one of those shows that there are some episodes where you have really creative and interesting monster stuff, and then a majority of it is just, like, what the fuck were you guys thinking? Like, this, I don't, like, I really wanted to like the show because as a kid, my version of all this was a show called Are You Afraid of the Dark? Right. On on Nickelodeon. And then, you know, obviously from there I would watch Twilight Zone and I did watch some Tales from the Dark Side. But this just feels like the most bargain basement, like right down to the the MIDI score for the theme song. Oh, my God. Well, it's it, – and it is totally – I mean, like I said, it's as low budget as you get for TV. But the thing is there really were a lot of good writers that came in this. Especially, much like horror at 37,000 feet, for me – I found it campy in a good way. Uh, a lot of time, this is much... Uh, Tales of the Dark Side would do everything. It was like horror, sci-fi, all sorts of stuff. This is just monster stories, you know, as the title would suggest, which I feel like it being more focused actually helped this when it's so low budget because you know it's going to be a little campier and sillier. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought the monsters, for what they are, look great, personally. I really did. Well, and, yeah. And as well... Like, this is filled with, like, actors. You're like, oh, my God, look who it is. Like, there's tons of people in this. I had to keep stopping to look up who people were and go, like, wait, where do I know them from? Oh, my God, look who it is. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I was really grateful to get this. It was one of those I had trouble stopping watching it, which I had to because I had too much stuff to watch. Got a couple discs into it and was like, okay, I got to stop. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I had the exact opposite reaction to this. I thought it was just way too cheesy and way too camp. Like, campy to the point that I just felt like, at some points, they were just being lazy, and I just – I could not get into this at all. And that fucking music. Well, I won't deny oh that some episodes God. work better than ever uh, – better than others. Yeah. And uh, and there's – and it has that mix where some are trying really hard to be super serious, and some are trying really hard to be just plain silly. I mean, they know they're going for comedy, and that's it. And then some of them went for a weird – soul. did you watch the episode My Zombie Lover? Yeah. Has the weirdest, like – social equality message I think I've ever seen. I feel like it was just a satire of the Cosby show is what they were. No, 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 no. There is a specific point where, okay. So the, the, okay. So for my zombie lover, the story is that there is a, uh, an African American family who lives in a, in a world where one night every year zombies arise and they've just learned to live with it. Like, what do you oh, mean in a world? <laughs> okay. Yes. Our world that where this All totally right. happens. You're right. We have more than one night. So there's focused on, uh, the, on this family and the, it's very much the Cosby's. They're all in sweaters. They're all, the dad has a pipe and talks very much like Ward Cleaver and they're going out to hunt zombies. And the little kid, the little boy in the family is going out to protest 
the uh, the wanton murder of zombies. Zombies are people too. But the really weird part is that the zombie that the uh, the daughter used to know in high school comes back and they like try to have a relationship, and it gets to a point where the dad and the and these this zombie boyfriend are having this discussion like, why do you hate all of us? Why can't you? Why can't we all just you know accept each other and get along? And the zombie says, "We are, we too are guilty of prejudice without knowing any of you. I mean, that's why we call you livers." And I was like, "Okay, that's dangerously close." Like it was just like they were clearly making, uh, basically a uh, uh, civil rights message, but in the middle of this really sort of overly cheesy zombie thing. See, I felt they were more toying with it. I thought that I felt like that message was more of a joke thrown in than it was them being seriously trying to push that cuz that episode in it didn't work. is played but... completely for laughs and it doesn't totally work. In fact, all right, so not to put too fine a point on it. The Twilight Zone is the best show ever that has ever done this sort of anth- like a hands down. Yeah, anthology horrors type stuff. No question. Nobody else even comes close. None of them, including monsters. But for what it is, there's still some gems to be found in here. Even, you know, at its worst, you'll be like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck was that? But it was only 20 minutes. And then you go on to the next one and hope for something better. And it's filled with guest stars that are actually pretty cool very early in their career, like Debbie Harry, Laura Branigan, Lily Taylor, David Spade, Tony Shaloub, Steve Buscemi, Gina Gershon, people like that, including tons of people who are lesser known, but you'll still be like, oh my God, it's that guy from that TV show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just had fun with this. This is one of those, and I do kind of collect anthology, uh, television programming, like, of this sort. Like, mm-hmm. I've got the complete Outer Limits, and I've got the complete Twilight Zone, I've got the complete Tales from the Dark Side. I have all this stuff, and I, I, I love it. I, it's one of those, like, hey, I got an hour to kill, I can watch two or three episodes <laughs> of this, and it's just a fun little short stories on TV thing that every once in a while, one will be great. Yeah. Uh, and I do. I, I like this much better than Tales from the Dark Side myself. I had fun with it. It's not for everybody. And part of it might be that I have that nostalgia for this because I was watching this when you were probably the same age as you were watching. Uh, Are you afraid of the dark? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was. That was after, but after my time, so I never saw that one. All I'm going to say is that I would much rather, and not for nostalgia reasons, watch Are You Afraid of the Dark. But yeah, obviously, Twilight Zone is the king of the hill. And- oh yeah. But if you're if you're a completionist who likes to who likes to watch any and all uh, iterations of this kind of concept, then yeah, check out check out Monsters. I just it didn't work for me. I would argue it's bad, much better than that, but it's definitely more for people who probably remember it the first time around, or people who just in general know they like this type of programming. Yeah. Well, moving on from there, we should talk about Outpost Three: Rise of Spetsnaz. 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 I'm guilty of being a fan of the Outpost series. I like the, I like the first two, which is not for everybody because a lot of people are like, I don't understand. Shouldn't I be laughing by now? It's Nazi zombies. Isn't this like Dead Snow? It's not mm, like Dead Snow. No. Dead Snow is great, and it's all about Nazi zombies too, but it's played for laughs. Yeah. Outpost takes the whole concept and goes, no, we're dead serious. Ha, as it were. And more or less makes it work. Yeah. Now, the first two are, if not present day, then, you know, much after World War II. Yeah, they don't take place during World War II. Uh, the first one was sold with Ray Stevenson in the lead, uh, being an English horror film where Ray is more popular over there, I guess. Was he an ex-soccer player? I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Seems like the role for an ex-soccer player. It, it's not, it's, he's not on the Vinnie Jones track. I think everybody else was an ex-soccer player. <laughs> Let's just assume that, uh, who uh, gets, uh, basically is paid to go find this old, uh, 
uh, Nazi bunker that ends up having this sort of reality altering mechanisms in there that create zombies and bring ghosts back from the dead of Nazis. It's, it's very kind of confusing what exactly they are, but let's just say Nazi zombies basically yeah. who, uh, come back and kill everybody. The second one is sort of like basically a follow up crew. What the fuck happened to that crew who go back again and gives us little tastes of flashbacks up to when, how did all the, all this get started in the first place? Outpost three takes the inevitable turn of being, all right, it's time just to do a prequel and show all how, how all this started. And in many ways, it's it's pretty different from the original two in that this is actually kind of more of an action horror movie. Mm. I mean, they've got this great lead, Brian Larkin, who plays, you know, a, a top Spetsnaz, one of the Russian, you know, sort of special forces guys who's deep in Nazi territory and, uh, uh, you know, just gets brought to this outpost with some of his soldiers and then has to fight his way out, seeing all sorts of horrors along the way. And the guy's a badass. <laughs> He's like beating the shit out of people and breaking arms. And you're like, wow, as an action movie, this actually is pretty cool. This dude is kind of, he, he's, he's very iconic. I can see him going on to bigger and better things from here. But it does have that problem of the fact that like, wait, what, what are these things? <laughs> it's clear they haven't quite gotten totally over to zombie territory yet. Like maybe some of them are zombies, but then again, some of them look like the, like, the main bad guys, like the bosses in the Resident Evil series, except that they actually knew rest, no wrestling moves for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets pretty silly on that level. But, you know, it's another fun entry in this, in this series. It's bloody. It's got good action in it. It, it's got that same sort of sepia tone, cool past coolness as we go through this disturbing, bunker of uh, you know nazi experiments as hp lovecraft would have imagined them um <laughs> not, not really terribly scary but genuinely creepy throughout i had a good time with this i'm really glad i i hope this is kind of the end of it because this seems like a good stopping spot for the series quite frankly just finish it here that's good because each one is a little worse than the one before it no question yeah. the first one is definitely the best but it's still a pretty entertaining film. And if you've liked the first one or you like the first two, then this is equally worth picking up. Sweet. Well, I'm going to check it out because I did like the first two. Uh, from there, we're going to move on to The Wrath of Vajra. Ha ha ha. Vajra. Man, I really needed another martial arts film with a bunch of fucking brutal ass kicking after seeing The Raid 2. Yeah. And this is not no. Raid 2. No. But that being said... In fact, The Raid 2 will probably spoil you for a lot of martial arts films that come after. <laughs> it's it's like the best one. Yeah. But I'm a lifelong aficionado of these things, and The Wrath of Vajra is basically a, let's try and pretend as if we were serious about a Mortal Kombat film. Yeah. More or less. It is very much like <laughs> Mortal Kombat. It's, it's a lot of fun, too. Yeah, it really is. It knows what it's doing. It has a very decent budget behind it, and it's a bunch of... It's, it, it's like the... Japan is it when they were invading China and China was fighting back too much. So they resurrect this old cult called the cult of Hades. The cult of Hades. The, yes, it's a Japanese cult trying to take over China by using Greek mythology. I, I'm not really sure what was going on. It's like a that. food court. Uh, and their whole thing is like about being magnificent warriors and not using weapons and just I mean, it's very confusing. I don't understand all the specifics <laughs> of what they're supposed to be going on. But they abduct young children and they train them from being very young to eventually be like these total badass driven soldiers for this organization. 
Now, enter an ex-abducted kid who was one of the ultimate badasses, who has since grown up uh, at a Shaolin monastery and become sort of a master of this various different forms, and has decided he's got to come back and rescue these children. And the leader of this whole group over there is, like, his old brother, who he grew up with there, and now he's, you know, I mean, they were on different sides, and there's that sort of reluctance, like, oh, we don't really want to fight each other, but our philosophies are too different, and we have to, you know, we have to do what we have to do. But fuck all that. Who cares about any of that? Because what this is really about is a series of really impressive martial art fights. Like, wow. My favorite one being versus this guy they call Crazy Monkey, who apparently yeah. is a pop and lock dancer that's really well known over the, in Hong Are Kong. Are you serious? Yeah, he's a really famous pop and lock dancer. And he uses his skills here using that and uh, uh what do you call it when you run on buildings and shit? Parkour. Uh, parkour to like act like he's doing like monkey style kung fu. And it's a really awesome. Awesome fight. Like, yeah. wow, that dude is awesome. I want to see a whole Crazy Monkey spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see Crazy Monkey spinning off pretty much every wall. Pretty so much everything. Why yeah. not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, there's a, it's very well filmed. Uh, you know, I mean, it does the same thing every one of these does these days. Every once in a while, you're like, I could tell that was sped up. Why are you editing this as much as you did? But ultimately, you can tell these guys actually do know how to fight. And they are big motherfuckers. Yeah, the, the main <laughs> guy kind of strikes me as a weird combination of Donnie Yen and Bruce Lee. Yeah. His Fighting style is is very similar. His look is very similar to Donnie Yen, and he does that thing like when he like there's literally a scene where he steps on a guy's back and makes that face like Bruce Lee did in Enter the Dragon when he was breaking that guy's neck with his foot. And I was yeah. just like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> well, there's no question Bruce Lee's influence still runs deeply through the Hong Kong martial arts scene as any other. And then the main bad guy is like this huge muscled brute of a dude who still moves like crazy, like really yeah, fast. He's very nimble. Uh, but yeah, there's, it, if I have a disappointment at all with this, it's, you know, other than the fact the plot is like heinously silly. Yeah. It really is. Um, which is, you know, if you watch enough of these things, you learned long ago to forgive that if the fighting is good enough. It's that the last fight isn't as good as the fights that come before it. It's better shot than any of the other it's fights. It's better shot. It's but just, it just doesn't. Yeah. Just not as good a fight. No. And the other fights are really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, like I said, there's a whole series of these. Even when the plot's just being silly, they make it fun to watch as it moves quickly and it brings it into all sorts of bizarre aspects of this cult. Um, and this, the, you know, the weirdest thing for me is they kept referring back to the actual head of the cult who's in prison as if he was going to show up at some point and be the ultimate he's badass. Very, and then he has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, he's very ineffectual plot-wise. But, yeah. you know, I, I think my favorite sequence in the film is at the beginning when our hero is – or I guess it was – was it the villain? Somebody's training – again, confusing plot. Somebody is is training using those uh, those those dummies with the with the spindle arms. And all of a sudden, they cut like in his head, they come to life. Yeah. So you actually see him fighting his practice dummies. Yeah. And I thought that was a really cool sequence. I've never seen it. Which they like return to later again when yeah. he watches his you know former friend take on these dummies as well. And yeah. Like that's a neat little concept that they yeah. Did visually, there. it was really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff visually going on cool in here. And, and it's from Hong Kong, which lately has had mainly over-stylized and not enough actual solid fighting films uh, in their oeuvre. This is one of the few ones to come along in a while that's really worth going out of your way for if you're a fan of these things. Totally. Well, moving on from there, why don't we talk about commitment? Chris, I'm going to need some commitment from you. Okay. Well, my the only commitment you're going to get is I'm going to talk about what this movie is. Other than that, I'm I'm free to watch other movies. I'll take it. Uh, this is a South Korean spy thriller starring yet another pop singer. <laughs> Man, why is this a thing over there? 
I don't. They, that's all. Uh, never mind. Yeah, thank God we don't put musicians in movies over here. No, but actually, not anywhere near as much. No, not <laughs> and I don't know what it is. I mean, it's more endemic to Hong Kong and Japan, but which is like there are no new stars that aren't pop singers, as near as I can tell. And if you are a star, they'll make you a pop singer. Even yeah. Jackie Chan has like twenty oh, albums. God, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember hearing some of his tracks at the end of some of his movies and just being like, "No, Jackie Chan." No, sir. Well, in general, I'm not the world's biggest fan of a of a Asian pop, but uh, although there's some damn good uh, punk and rockabilly coming out of Japan for some reason. But anyway, <laughs> this lead guy's name known as Top from the K-pop boy band Big Bang. And I'm out. If you're a fan, uh, fortunately, there's none of that sort of silliness going on here. He is the teenage son of an ex North Korean agent who. Basically, they say, like the North Koreans say, look, we have your sister and we're going to do terrible things to her unless you train to be an agent and do what we tell you. So he trains to be an agent, goes to South Korea to basically go there and, you know, integrate himself into the local high school and and be not noticed uh, until it's time for him to, you know, be a not sleeper agent and do his job. The problem is, is that apparently there's a rival North Korean I don't know what the hell's going on in North Korea with all these different rival groups, but a different one has been tasked with taking out all the members of his group. So then suddenly there's these assassins going around killing everyone. He's, you know, all his contact people, including his, uh, you know, adopted parents who he's staying with there, who are just agents themselves. Um, and he's got to break cover to go out and be a badass, basically, and f- try and figure out what the fuck is going on, Save, figure out how to save his sister, as well as save the nerdy girl who he's befriended in the school, who mainly because, I guess, they, she, she's the only other person who's not a dick in the entire school. I, I, <laughs> I, I can't tell. I, everyone else in class picks on her, like, in a really sort of 80s high school party movie sort of way all the time. Maybe this is a thing that's more common in Korea these days. I don't know. But... um it's starts off really promising this movie because this guy top <laughs> Choi Shyung Yun. I don't know how to say his this name. This is fun watching you try to pronounce. I, I I I'm always gonna fail. I can't even say <laughs> names in English correctly. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Tell us more about Shia Wig Ham again. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like something at Denny's. It is, isn't it? I will have the Shia Wig Ham. Wig Thank ham. you very much. Shia Wig Ham, yes. With the side of ham. <laughs> <laughs> Shea Wigum, okay? You I got know. it. I know, I know. <laughs> what are word things? <laughs> what are word things? <laughs> This is why we do podcasts. But Choi is actually not too bad at first. He's got acting wise, he's got some real chops here and you actually start feeling for him and kind of rooting for him and this friendship he's getting with this girl. You, the scene where he beats the shit out of the bullies is actually very funny and there's some good stuff. Unfortunately, once it starts going into full blown, like, okay, now it's time for the plot to actually kick in. It gets pretty silly pretty fast and ultimately leaves you with a sort of like, wow, this was an incredibly predictable movie set in a genre of he's a badass hiding in high school that American television has done to death already. Right. Um, it, there's just not a lot new here. And as much as Joy's able to perform as much as the movie needs him to, there's nothing that's going to make you go, whoa, it's a passable little teenage spy thriller but nothing to write home about although i will admit that i was interested enough in the very charismatic lead that i'd be into i'd watch whatever he does next uh, maybe not a video for big bang but <laughs> <laughs> but nobody should watch that let's nobody should watch that well from there we're gonna i'm gonna talk about a movie called enemies closer which uh admittedly i'm a couple weeks behind on but i only just got a chance to watch this um a couple things going into this you should know 
is that it's directed by uh, Peter Himes. And Peter Himes... Time Cop. Yeah, is, like, huge. Like, Peter Himes has done some really great films. Uh, Running Scared, a movie I talk about a lot, that uh, buddy cop movie with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal. 2010, which, I'm sorry, this may get me crucified, but I actually like better than 2001. I do, too. I, don't, I know everybody's going to be like, what? You're stupid. Okay, maybe I'm stupid, but I'm sorry, 2010's a better movie. <laughs> Outland, The Star Chamber. I mean, the guy in his career, Busting, which is another really great uh, buddy cop movie. Ooh, busting makes me feel good. Busting makes me feel good too. As does the movie Stay Tuned, which is a lesser heralded movie in his catalog. That's right. I like that movie. Ooh, Capricorn One. I yeah. love that movie. So this is a guy who is a fucking living legend in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, he's Not at that so point in his career like... where it's just like, guy's got to work. Guy's got to eat. And he uh... reteams with Jean-Claude Van Damme for this movie, Enemies Closer, which, I mean, okay, first and foremost, Setting an action movie on the U.S. Canadian border is about the worst possible setting. Like, come on, that's the most exciting border there is. <sighs> Actually, yeah. that's the only time I've ever been scared of international relations in my entire life was crossing into Canada. Well, there you okay. Like, well, my mom didn't tell me in her car we borrowed that she had mace in there in the glove compartment. I didn't know. She, and they're like, "You have any weapons in the car?" Like, no. And like, what's this? And they kept us for like hours in this little oh, room. Jesus Christ! I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me, Canada?" So horror movie, maybe, but not so much action film. Uh, so the, and then I beat everyone's ass. There you go. The basic plot here is that you have this park ranger who uh, is suddenly beset by this this team of uh, drug cartel violent types, all dressed like Mounties, by the way. So That's even because, more intimidating. Yeah, super intimidating. Don't hey, you know? Hey, are you going to smoke that? I, I'd really appreciate <laughs> it if you didn't, eh? Um, so in the midst of this... He's also he also comes across this guy who blames him for his brother's death and the two of them are kind of having this this conflict between the two of them when all of a sudden these guys show up these cartel guys trying to recover this lost shipment of cocaine and they realize they have to work together or they're both going to be killed. The movie should be called Falling Stars because not only do we have Jean-Claude Van Damme, we also have Tom Everett Scott, who you might remember from the 90s. <laughs> right. Was he the he's the that thing you do guy? Yes, that thing you do. I, um, you know, he looked like he was on his way to big things. He was in a point. shit ton of movies in the 90s. That thing you do, American Werewolf in Paris, uh Dead Man on Campus, like all of these movies he kept getting that didn't do very well. <laughs> and then all of a sudden just poof, he was gone and then yeah. it turns up as well as Orlando Jones, who you might remember as the 7-Up guy. Oh, he's having a comeback right now, though. Is he? Yeah, he's one of the main stars on Sleepy Hollow, which has been a big hit, apparently. For, I have not I seen a... want to say NBC. I, I have not remember. seen a single episode. It's Fox, actually. Oh, I haven't Fox, seen a okay. single episode of that, so I did not know that. But the last thing I remember seeing him in was The Replacements with Keanu Reeves. So there you go. Or maybe Drumline. Anywho, so you have all of these, like, pseudo... Celebrities, I guess, in this movie. Ex-celebrities. Ex-celebrities. And, you know, it's just, it's a very paint-by-numbers, direct-to-video action film. God love him. Jean-Claude Van Damme is still trying, and he's got bigger hair than Christopher Walken in this movie for some reason. Like, they give him just this giant fro, and he looks insane. Uh, But, I mean, the fight sequences aren't very good. It's not particularly well-lit. Like, even the outdoor stuff is just... It just—it seems like a movie that was made for five dollars or whatever that is in Canadian money, and I don't know. I just—I tried really hard to to stay positive on it because I like Peter Hyams a lot, and I actually liked uh, Universal Soldier Regen- Regeneration. Was that the the one that was at Fantastic Fest? The the one before that, like the okay, one I didn't see the one before. That. The one before that was like uh, it was like the first movie to bring back. Uh, 
Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme to the franchise. And then they, we made, got the sequel about a year ago. But anyway, um, so and that was his son doing that. I, but I was like, okay, I'm trying to stay positive on all this, but there's just nothing here that really stood out. And it was just the kind return. of... Yeah, the return. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I can't. I can't really recommend this movie. Unfortunately, uh, I. I just think that it's. It suffers from all of the things that, looking at it, you might assume that it would suffer from. And not. I, I want to stress this. Not all direct-to-video movies are bad. Not all direct-to-video movies are something that you should skip. And in fact, quite the opposite. This one just happens to be exactly the type of direct-to-video movie you should probably go ahead and There's skip. There's got to be some other Gareth Evans types out there who yeah. can go and make these type of films. I don't understand why stars like Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme, who do indeed know how to fight and move fast, don't get in movies from people who can respect their skills and let them actually show them. Otherwise, when I watch these type movies, I'm like, wow, with today's editing and the way this is edited, you can tell that anybody could be doing this definitely you could have made gary coleman if he was still alive do these moves i mean i think it, nailing the point right on the head here is the fact that tom everett scott is is sold to us as a badass navy seal well there you go yeah anyway we're gonna close the show out with atlantis the legend begins season one jesus christ what happened to you I don't know. I think I drank my beer too fast. Uh, this is the latest attempt by the BBC to capture the magic of Merlin, which was not to everybody's taste, to be sure, but it was one of those... Sh- because <laughs> it was Capture the magic of you Merlin. You see what I did there? Yeah, I like it. Uh, Merlin was a huge hit for them, and, and rightfully so, even though it still followed a very episodic, very kind of, you know, here are the young versions of these characters uh, going on and... and and starting into the things that we all know where they go, you know, and it worked mm-hmm. and largely because of an incredibly charismatic and likable cast that they got for that, that series that got better as it went along. I thoroughly enjoyed it for what it was. I wouldn't put it versus some of the great shows. I mean, it's no, you know, orphan black, that's for sure. But it, it, for what it was, it was really enjoyable. They tried to recreate that same sort of format with Sinbad, which was a, abject failure for them both critically and uh with audiences people just hated it because it wasn't very good at all right and then this being even worse and, and they have sunk so much money into this for oh, promotion no. they've been trying to sell this all over the place and boy is it one mess of a program i like how you said sunk a bunch of money into a That's show called atlantis. atlantis yeah uh, even though this has nothing to do with atlantis ultimately what it's like this guy uh, played by Jack Donnelly, uh, his name's Jason. No, not, not Alec Baldwin from 30 Rock. Okay. Yeah. I was gonna. <laughs> um, he is looking for his father, who was a m- marine explorer and disappeared in this area of the ocean. So he goes looking for him, gets sucked into this bright light, wakes up on the shores of this place and that they say, Oh, this is Atlantis. Except that it's outdoors and on, you know, on a big country and there's stuff everywhere. It's like, wait, what the fuck are you talking about? And the king is named Minos. Like, do I have to need to point out to you that if the king is named Minos, it's Crete? <laughs> you Cretan? I'm just, I'm just, there's all this stuff like that. I'm like, like, what's his, and he ends up befriending a guy, Hercules, but played by Mark Addy, who's this big fat dude who constantly acts like he's a badass, but really he's a coward in the comedy, you know, the portion of the show. And his roommate and friend, 
played by Robert Ems, who is Pythagoras, who is a wannabe scientist, of course, and they throw in triangle jokes way too often. His theorem really fucked me up in high school, I'll tell you that <laughs> and much. And everyone else. Eventually, you get other characters, like, they, they have a female friend whose name is Medusa, even though she seems to be normal, but she gets cursed after beating somebody from some cult or something. I don't know. So eventually, you know, that's going to play out to something. Every episode ends with something like, where the, where they turn to the audience and go, wink because we know this won't turn out well like there's a they rescue a child from a father who's trying to kill it who they end up naming oedipus and you're like going oh for god's sake oh jesus christ it's just filled with that kind of shit which you know merlin to some extent did the same thing except all that stuff even though there's a variety of ways you can tell and have been told the king arthur story ultimately it all coalesced back into a way that made sense in the primary story this is like uh, King Arthur's not based on things we know now actually happened, <laughs> like yeah. like Crete being a place and King Minos being a real person and knowing there was a labyrinth there. I mean, yes, it was mythologized above and beyond the facts of things, but we know those places existed. This is saying, oh, no, no, that was Atlantis, all those things you think that they couldn't be Atlantis because we know where they are. Right. <laughs> they did not Sink under the sea. Stop telling us it's Atlantis. None of this makes any sense. This at is all. Atlanta. As That's where you film as this. As close as they get to it being Atlantis is that the the dominant god of the city is Poseidon, and one of the characters is like an oracle to Poseidon, who's constantly going with the lead character. Oh, you have a destiny that Poseidon has decided. You know what? Shut the fuck up. This is just a bad ripoff of Merlin with really boring actors playing all these roles just it's not fun i mean even with alexander Siddig, who i usually really enjoy uh who of course is an old star trek veteran playing king minos the the, the scowly one of the scowly villains his wife being the real villain there's nothing there's just nothing to recommend here it's so mediocre i'm quite frankly baffled as to why they're promoting this so strong why they think this is good quality i mean maybe they're excited because it's got some of the guys who made merlin and the creator of misfits which was a big hit for them they think oh it's gonna be like a super show it's not it's super lame Yeah, it doesn't sound very good. This show should be thrown into the ocean. What? It's funny. I I moved Enemies Closer to the penultimate title we were going to talk about because I thought, well, I really don't want to end on a sour note. But thankfully, Atlantis, The Legend Begins Season 1 has accomplished that for us anyway. Yep. So let's end on a high note, and that is our giveaway. And this week, we actually have a copy of a show or a movie we talked about last week. Beyond Outrage. Yes, you should want this one. On Blu-ray, and we're giving that away uh, courtesy of Magnolia. And for this giveaway, first of all, we do things via Twitter. We do sort of a, a Twitter writing prompt as our giveaway. So you make sure you're going you're to want to make sure you're following us at one of us net on Twitter. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to come up with what your Yakuza nickname – like, let's let's imagine that oneofus.net is the Yakuza. Well, you got to have a cool nickname if you're going to be in our – you know, our clan. So I want you to come up with your nickname. Is it the Blade? Is it uh, the, the Fighting Mushu? I don't know. Whatever. Thumbless Joe. Thumbless Joe. Just come up with your cool Yakuza nickname. Tweet it at us with the hashtag, the clan of us. And you know what? I'm going to change that because I just realized how that could be misconstrued. So what else do they call them? The clan. Of yeah, us. just like because in Yakuza no movies, no black people allowed. Yeah, in, one in, of in us. Yakuza movies, they call their their groups clans. Uh, the cult of us. The the. What else do they call them in in Yakuza movies? I don't know. Uh, they call them uh, sex uh, cells. 
the 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 us family. Let's let's have you tweet the us family. Uh, <laughs> Why don't just tweet tweet one of us? One of us. Yeah. Okay. Just tweet one of. Wow. I'm sorry. Guys. Hashtag it. One of us. Hashtag one of us. So follow one of us net at one of us net. Tell us what your yakuza nickname would be. <laughs> hashtag one of us because even though it works for yakuza films, I we just realized doesn't anyone making a mistake about what we're talking. Especially about. if you accidentally spell it with a K. Fuck that. We shit. don't want that to happen. Fuck that. So once again. Uh, follow one of us net on Twitter at one of us net. Tell us what your cool Yakuza nickname would be. Hashtag one of us. And you can also, while you're on Twitter, follow me at Chris Cox critic and me at, at Bry guy Salisbury, because we sometimes post stuff. That's funny. Absolutely. And you can go to the website. You can become a subscriber, which would be a really awesome thing for you to do right now. Intent, 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 intent. And not uh, very subtle hint. Not not a very subtle hint. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash one of us net, and please do use those Amazon links. Yes, that helps us out more than we can describe. Indeed. And that's gonna do it for this show, Chris. We're done. We did it. We out. Are we out? Out? Well, why we can't really be out until I remind people that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. So now we're out. Now we're out. Just trying to be clear. Yeah. <laughs>